You're listening to Tiger's Eye, episode 23. in our bed with her eyes wide open. I approach and sit, uncertain of what to say. The tribe are going to pray for Carol. They would like for you to be there. Besides which, it will be more appropriate and show them that you are recovering. She does not respond. They are gathering now. Will you come with us? Rao. Rao, enough of this. The Seven will hear our prayers, but your presence is needed. You have to show your face. I do not care. Did you call to the Father of Passing for Carol? No. I did not find her. She will need help getting to the next place. Surely you want the Seven to- Do you ever listen? I said I do not care. Of course the Seven are forgiving of your blasphemy, but you must- I curse the Seven! Rao, this is dangerous- If the Seven took her from me, then it was for their own entertainment. So either they are my most hated enemies- Or else they do not care. Or else they do not exist. I... Rao, you could face exile for saying these words. In times past, it would have been execution on the spot. I must forget what I am hearing. Walk away from me, shaman. Forget whatever you wish. I will not pray on your behalf. That is acceptable. But will you pray on Carol's behalf? She was my daughter, too. Since you will not stop asking, I will come with you now. As long as you are aware that there is not a shred of love in my words. There is an emptiness inside me now. I cannot be gratified for my continued existence. Rao, there is no gift greater than this life you so violently undervalue. But there are people who need you all the same. Do not serve the Seven if you wish. I will tell no one of your heresy in honor of our cub. But you must use this granted life to serve your family. All right, I will. After this, she draws away from me, sleeping apart and spending her nights hunting. We never speak of these matters further, and she eventually takes a house of her own, 
It was just one cub. One marvelous, clever, treasured, beautiful cub. We can have more. We are meant to. She bears no further children, and I no longer ask her to. When I speak with her now, she looks through me, as though I were a stranger. Time passes. We are still married, to this day. My other cubs grow and get mates of their own. Still, Prow is lost out there. And it is I who failed to bring her home. She is the puzzle I cannot solve. I'm standing on the walkway, high in the canopy, at the easternmost corner of Durga village. Behind me I can hear the fires in conversation. I know I'm needed, but not urgently. This is my moment of peace. Thin tendrils of smoke are beginning to curl through the treetops. I fix upon them and realize they are clouds, golden clouds. The leaves shrivel at their touch, and I know immediately that if I take in one single breath, then I shall fall as well, disheveled, dead, useless to all. I must save my family. All the tribe must flee. I turn and bolt back to the village, praying we can outrun these clouds, but they have quietly snuck in from the south as well. They were here before I was aware. My family are dying. I rush towards them, hoping to spur them into action, but they are on their haunches. Faces up, eyes glassy, tongues lolling. I look on in absolute horror as their fur starts to smoke and burn. Not with flames, but a cold, creeping erosion. Nobody cries out as their skin melts, their faces deforming and drooping, their teeth blackened, their bones pushing through. The golden clouds are all around me now. I smash through the wood below and fall down toward the ground, guiding myself through the air to a tree and clinging to the bark, which falls away like charred flesh, leaving the pale wood raw and exposed. The clouds are on the forest floor, creeping towards me on all sides. I have nowhere to run. There is a parting in the mist, and Rouse stands there, her body unaffected. Upon her shoulders sits a hideous, pale creature, its face hidden behind a mask, its malevolent eyes locked on mine. I gasp for her to run, but she begins to disappear, her gaze staring through me, as though I no longer exist. As my own body begins to burn, I cry out, and Durga village cascades down from above. I wake, screaming and staring. My heart is pounding, fit to burst, and Nos and Sashel lay their paws upon me in tender reassurance. I slump back down in my bed, trembling. They ask what frightened me so. 
I cannot tell them, or anybody else. I dearly wish I could forget what I have seen. Instead, every night that goes by after this, I tell stories that will inflame the hearts of the Durga tribe. I do not reveal my dreams, but focus on the return from darkness and cold. The continuation of balance as it is now. I look for the spark in the eyes of the young. Someone who will respond to this, someone with light inside them. One cat named Lyrum, tall, quiet, thoughtful, responds well. He is not the best storyteller himself, but Keen's aptitude in the shamanic process is with ease. Too easily, in fact. I envy him. So Lyrum becomes my apprentice, and assists me just as I assisted Brask. And I await the day when I can step down and give him the role of our tribe's spiritual leader. Then comes the night when Rao brings home a demon she found in the river. And that fury I am holding back is pressed to its limits. As I step into Rao's house and see the creature in her bed, it is all I can do to hold back my impulses to kill it on the spot. The fur on the back of my neck rises up as I look down upon this obscenity, its pale, shivering skin and fluttering, rolling eyes. I vowed I would slay the first being that fit the description shown to me by my mentor. It is clearly not of this world, with strange clothing and some kind of arcane symbol hanging from its cursed neck. Its immediate destruction is so straightforward and obvious a solution that I am amazed at how hard I have to fight to make this point known and agreed upon, and its sickness makes this even more a matter of practicality. But the rest of my tribe do not see things as clearly as I. When Hrau leaves the group to execute the foul creature back at her home, I feel the glances of many cats on me. I detect the whispers of disapproval for this decision. Several of them are actively curious, and would be happy to let it live among us. Some even seek to learn from the little monstrosity. I prowl the walkways, awaiting the scent of strange blood. It does not emerge, and when I go to confront Rao directly, I find only her father. She's already gone, slinking away from Durga village without a word. Where is she headed, Junta? If I tell you, will you pursue? I wish to protect her. So do I. Please believe me, sir, I do not wish any harm upon your daughter. But you do want to kill that shrimpy little ape. She is in great danger in its company. She cannot know how much. This is my area of understanding, not hers. Please tell me. She said she was headed downriver. We regard one another, both entirely aware that he is lying to me. It is clear he will not trust my judgment more than he does his daughter's. 
I simply have to decide from what I know of Junta whether this is a double bluff, and if not, which other direction she may have headed. She is not thinking straight, and I must save her from this parasite. I reiterate my oath right there on that spot. I will kill this creature. I will tear its head from its body. I will set Rao free of its influence. This vow is solemn and binding. I am now set upon a quest that I will either fulfill or die in the attempt. I pack a bag, say goodbye to Noss and Sashel, and lay a paw on Lyrum's shoulder. Lead them. Until you return. If I can return, I will. But either way, you are shaman now. There is no fear in his eyes. No sudden burst of pride or arrogance, anger at my leaving, or resentment. He simply nods, placidly, gravely, and respectfully. I chose well. But I cannot fathom this tiger. I slink away from Durga village without a word. My pathway takes me sprinting in three directions, doubling back on myself each time. I am not the best tracker, but I can tell when there is no trail to follow. Eventually, I pick up her scent, already growing cold, on the road towards the abandoned city of Isis. I follow for several nights, resting only briefly as I begin to comprehend the delicate situation in my paws. If I simply fall upon the two of them to slay the Unholy One, she may retaliate with ferocity. I genuinely do not wish her any harm. I tell myself this repeatedly as I near Isis stopping outside of its walls, but not venturing further in. For the whispers of the Gagaku frighten even me. This is haunted ground, and I have heard tales of many an adventurous cat who journeyed inside and either escaped with a florid description of an unkillable wraith, or else they were never heard from again. Instead, I sit and reach out, extending myself along the veins of the jungle, threading through this dead city. I find an ibex nearby, solve it deftly, and pick my way on nimble hooves over the decrepit stonework. The ibex has not a fraction of the nose of a tiger, so I can only go by sound and sight. When I spot Rao, we freeze. She is startled, but does not recognize me in my ibex suit. Glaring at her now with this thing balanced upon her shoulder, its little claws knotted around her armor, I am gripped with a spasm of hatred. I take the ibex away before she sees who I am under there, and walk the animal back towards the outer wall. There's a sudden flurry as a shadow engulfs me and my heart is pierced. It takes a moment to realize I've been separated from the ibex and am now standing, looking over it. An immense, hunchbacked, orange-robed lion with long, black talons has just felled the poor creature. I reel away and flee to my own body, the eyes of this dark hunter behind me. I do not know if I was seen. 
I may camp and wait for Hrau to emerge once again, now far more nervous as to her safety. I meditate for a long while, allowing my vision to swim through the city, suspended not by borrowed flesh but by the ebb and flow of the dream time. I am curious as to whether the fabled shaman known as the Silent One is indeed alive within, but I am wary of the prowling Gagaku, whom I suspect I have already seen. I make creeping spirit runs to and fro through the old streets and back to my body as it sits exposed and vulnerable. In the rolling wind waves of the other world, I see less than I would enclosed in flesh and shadows pass by me endlessly, disorientating and turning my world about. Eventually I find the Silent One, an ancient priestess squatting at the center of this ruin. She is with Hrau and the demon. For a fraction of a moment we share one another's thoughts. She sees my intent and the sincerity of my determination. I see her secrecy. There is no Gagaku. It is her. I snap awake and prepare myself. She will be warning them. Prowl will not travel back in this direction. I pace back and forth, uncertain of where to move next. Should I skirt the outer city walls in the hope of seeing them leave? No. Much better to find this old tiger, glean from her precisely where the demon is bidding Prowl to carry it. I sprint through Isis, gathering speed and ferocity my spear at my back and my club at my side. I burst through the doors of her pitiful cathedral to find the Gagaku waiting. Set down the theatrics, O oh Silent One. I see your true nature. You have but moments to live. Tell me where they went, old lady. I will say nothing. Then prepare yourself for You are a shaman, correct? Yes, and one more powerful than you. If you think- I'll take that as a yes. You may as well stop your shouting. I can't hear a word. You are deaf? Of course I'm not going to tell you where they went. And you may be big and strong, but I reckon I can take you all the same. That said, I'd rather not get hurt doing it. So if you want to walk from this place unharmed, I'll let you. Just turn away, and go back to your village. It sounds like they are in need of a good shaman to guide them. And you are a good shaman, correct? Am I? Am I? We stare at one another. The silent one unlatches her mask and lets it fall to the floor. Her deep, Icy blue gaze fixes upon mine. Her scarred jaw is set, and her sharp talons ready. This old witch would happily send an abomination back out into the world. Yet here she stands, ready for her final end, with defiant eyes. I look back upon this moment now, with shame.
You have been listening to Tiger's Eye, written and edited by Alex Shaw, with a full cast. Hucker, performed by Spencer Lieb. Harau, performed by Maureen Foley. Hunter, performed by Alex Shaw. Lyrum, performed by Lauren Grieve. And The Silent One, performed by Sharon Shaw. The main theme was Agent in Shanghai, composed by 1M1 Music of Shockwave Sound. Stormfront, performed by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. Many soundscapes by Tabletop Audio. Our special Patreon sponsors and contributors this month were Ian and Megan Hopwood, Joel Robinson, Russell Osborne, Nick Grugin, Mark Lutch, David Garcia Abril, Maureen Foley, Ben Hayes, Stefan Gardinia, Kieran Datchler, Lorraine Chisham, Livio de la Cruz, Scott Cordzine, Dan Mayer, and Erish Travers. And to everyone else who supports us on Patreon, a big thank you. And you can buy, rate, and review Secret Rooms on the Kindle Store.